Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to also check out our newly released podcast entitled By Study and by Faith, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Visit speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more details. In Nauvoo, in July of 1840, the Prophet Joseph Smith gave a great discourse on the temple. He said, among other things, Now, brethren, I obligate myself to build as great a temple as ever Solomon did, if the church will back me up. He went on to prophesy that some their living would live to see it with their eyes. And then he closed, saying, And if it should be the will of God that I might live to behold that temple completed and finished from the foundation to the top stone, I will say, O Lord, it is enough. Let thy servant depart in peace which is my earnest prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. As the months passed and the difficulties increased and the plans for completion everlastingly postponed, he came to know by the Spirit he would not live to see it finished. And so, in anticipation of that, made several important decisions. In May of 1842, called to his side nine of the most faithful of his brethren, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, Willard Richards, and others. In our official records, we now list only seven because two of the nine became apostate, William Law and William Marks. When Brigham Young said later, and he did say, that there were men at Carthage who had received their temple endowments, he meant men at Carthage in the mob. He had in mind at least one of those two. If it should be the will of God that I might live, he had said, now two years later, it is not the will of the Lord that I should live. And brethren, I must give you here in this upper room of this store all those glorious plans and principles whereby men are entitled to the fullness of the priesthood. He proceeded in an improvised and makeshift way to do so. If you have asked yourself the question, how did Joseph Smith know all these ordinances? and How was it that they were transmitted? We have this much of a glimpse. To the first, we have the promise given him in section 124 that the Lord would reveal to him all things pertaining to that house and the place whereon it should be built. We have from Brigham Young this testimony that after they received these glorious blessings, the prophet turned to him and said, Brother Brigham, this is not arranged right, but we have done the best we could under the circumstances in which we are placed. And I wish you to take this matter in hand 
and organize and systematize all these ceremonies. Then, says Brigham, this is 30 years later, I did so, and each time I got something more, meaning that each time he worked on systematizing, he not only had his memory and the records kept by Wilfred Woodruff and others, but the light of revelation. Each time I got something more, so that when we went through the temple at Nauvoo and without Joseph, I understood and knew how to place them there. We had our ceremonies correct. Joseph had said to the brethren on that occasion, the communications I made to this council were of things spiritual and to be received only by the spiritual-minded. And there was nothing made known to these men but what will be made known to all the saints of the last days. So soon as they are prepared to receive and a proper place is arranged and prepared to communicate them, even to the weakest of the saints. Therefore, let the saints be diligent in building the temple and all houses which they have been or shall hereafter be commanded of God to build and wait their time with patience in all meekness, faith, and perseverance unto the end, knowing assuredly that all these things referred to in this council are always governed by the principle of revelation. Those statements are all part of our official history. But if you would know more of what was in the heart and mind of the prophet in this period regarding the temple, let me read you a few just brief sentences from comments he made to others. Speaking in February of 1844 to a group of elders about to go on missions, he said, you need an endowment, brethren, in order that you may be prepared and able to overcome all things. Bathsheba W. Smith records that on an occasion the prophet said to her, you do not know how to pray and have your prayers answered. End of quote. And then she adds, but when I and my husband received our endowments, we learned how to pray. To another, one of the faithful sisters, Mercy R. Thompson, the prophet said, and she records that she received her temple blessings prior to its dedication in an upper room of the mansion house, and that the prophet's wife, Emma, officiated. She says that the prophet commented, this will bring you out of darkness into his most marvelous light. To some of the elders, he said, the keys are certain signs and words by which false spirits and personages may be detected from true. The elders must know them all to be endowed with power, to finish their work, and to prevent imposition. Elsewhere, he says, the temple must be built to organize the church fully. He told the Sisters of the Relief Society, who had, you remember, begun with a constitution of their own, that they were on right track, but that he must do it according to the priesthood, which he proceeded to do, but then said, but there is more sisters which we cannot present to you until the sanctuary 
is finished. Elsewhere, he said that the temple was built to help the saints prevent being overcome by persecution. And more than a half dozen of those who finally received their blessings just prior to the Exodus say they believe the Church of Jesus Christ would not have survived had not they received the blessings of the Nauvoo Temple. It might have survived in some physical sense, but not spiritually. And then he added, speaking to Jacob Hamlin, he told me that the time had fully come spoken of by the prophet Malachi. The saints must seek for the spirit of this great latter-day work, meaning the temple, and notice that they must pray for it until they received it. Blessed is he, he said to Reuben McBride, who was the first man to be baptized in the font, which they dedicated two years before the temple was finished. Blessed is he who was first baptized for the dead in this dispensation. Brother McBride, I wasn't going to mention, had a crippled hand. And the prophet said to him in faith, Wash your hands in that font and you will be healed. The doctors had told him it would take a year. He was completely healed in a week. Horace Cummings, who was in the Nauvoo period, records concerning the work for the dead. Joseph said that in the resurrection, those who had been worked for would fall at the feet of those who had done their work, kiss their feet, embrace their knees, and manifest the most exquisite gratitude. We do not comprehend, he said, what a blessing to them these ordinances are. Well, one of the faithful who caught the spirit of this was Wilfred Woodruff, and his journal is full of memories and details. Wilfred Woodruff, the man who kept a journal every day almost for 63 years, the most important single historical treasure we have in the church. Why did he keep it? Because the prophet admonished him to. More than two-thirds, by my estimate, of what we have of first-hand record of Joseph's discourses and counsels to his brethren would have been lost had it not been for Wilfred Woodruff's makeshift shorthand and then his staying awake often till past midnight transcribing into readable English. In that journal, Brother Woodruff records the day the prophet announced that the saints could, in fact, be baptized for the dead in the Mississippi River prior to the temple's completion but that there would come a time when the Lord would accept that no longer. They would have to do it in the temple. Immediately after the meeting, what happened? Instead of people shaking their heads in disbelief of the doctrine, many went down, strode into the Mississippi, and began to perform baptisms, men for women and women for men indiscriminately, without a recorder present. The prophet had to literally stop them and say, wait, this is to be done properly and in order. In the Nauvoo period, the prophet at least was able to get a roof over his own head with the help of his brethren, and it became the crossroads. Visitors, some prominent, some merely curious, and some, of course, intent upon his destruction. There are many things recorded in the journal of Charles L. Walker, who was a kind of an orphan who lived in the prophet's home for many months indicating how kindly the prophet tried to be coping with this 
increasing flow. Josiah Quincy, you remember, was one of those who came, the mayor eventually of Boston. Another who came with him, whose records we haven't been equally eager to read, they were locked up in a vault for a century, was Charles Francis Adams, one of the three famous Adams of John Quincy fame. Charles Francis Adams was not as impressed with Joseph as was Josiah. He was full of prejudice. He commented that he was a little bit unhappy to have to put down a quarter Mother Smith asked him for in order to see the mummies that were upstairs in the mansion house. And uh, when the prophet, as he put it, uh, impudently claimed to be able to translate some of the inscriptions, he says merely, it amused me. He did speak of the shame. This is the one constructive thing in his journal. The shame of the saints being driven and persecuted in a country whose constitution guaranteed religious freedom. But as for the prophet, he thought of him as a lightweight and a deceiver. Like a bed of gold, Wilfred often said, concealed from human view. But we know that in that same home there were meetings and that there were efforts on the prophet's part to strengthen his brethren and prepare them. During the winter, for example, of 1843 to 44, the prophet Joseph Smith met almost daily and sometimes twice with all of the faithful of the Council of the Twelve. Orson Pratt finally complained, Why do you give us no rest? And the prophet replied, The Spirit urges me. The Rasta Snow says of that period that he learned more in three months in council with the prophet Joseph than he had learned in all his life before that. And others who were involved, Parley among the many, tried to keep some kind of notes and tried to, to comprehend what they were understanding from him. He, in that period, reviewed every restored principle every restored authority, every ordinance, and completed it with a summary of the summary in a meeting in late March in which he said, Brethren, I have conferred upon you now every key and principle and power necessary for you to enter into the presence of God. Now you must round up your shoulders and build up the kingdom, or you will be damned. I am going to rest. In that same meeting, though there have been rumors to the contrary, the prophet made it completely clear to the Twelve that the presiding head of the Twelve, he had ordained him thus at Quincy, Illinois, late in 1839, but now he renewed that and said, the president of the Twelve, who alone holds the keys of sealing, is Brigham Young. They knew it then, they knew it later, and all that has been said about other leadership intentions of the prophet are false witnesses. We know a little, too, about how much the prophet came to love the situation, the beauty of that place, the temple, and the zealous construction of the saints. They did organize. They did have now, as a way of trying to prevent a recurrence of what had happened in Missouri, their own charter, their own plan of government, their own city ordinances, 
They had their own militia. It was not a great crack unit of military men, sort of like the San Francisco Fire Department. But it was a group of men who were at least drilled occasionally and trained to be able to defend under pressure. It was the fear of that legion, John Taylor believes, that postponed disaster as long as it was postponed. But the irony is that having trained them and having enlisted up to 5,000 men, many of them very young men, the prophet himself, by his own witness, told them they must stay home during the very crisis that they might have done something to help. He submitted in a statesmanlike way when he might have leveled the whole of Illinois. During that same period also, we read of the organization of the women. I've handed to the Relief Society and its strength what great women they were and how he did charge them and plead with them for the compassion and the help. He often said that it was not just their duty to aid and save and help the poor in a temporal way, but that it was ultimately their duty to save souls. He said occasionally in their midst that it is the nature of woman to have largeness of soul and compassion. To Eliza R. Snow, he once gave a watch as he stood to speak in the meeting, and that is still part of our artifacts in the historical department of the church. Emma, denominated the elect lady in an earlier revelation, was the president. And the kinship she felt with those sisters and theirs for hers has sometimes been obscured. It was strong. It was moving. And what they went through and did to cope with everything from breech births to the last stages of malaria will someday be known. Nauvoo also is the place where we established patterns which have continued to our own generation. We had, for the first time, a bit of a youth organization there, for example. We had the beginnings of sacrament meetings and an orderly procedure for doing it. We didn't have in Nauvoo what was now called a Sunday school, but often there were meetings, prayer meetings, and teaching meetings of various descriptions. We were straining then, as always, to outdo our resources in struggling with missionary work. And mission after mission was open. Our uh, Nauvoo era also is the, the period of, in some ways, the most life and death struggle. For there were many who by that time were organized who swore that they would bring Joseph Smith and his kingdom of blockheads to naught. I've been interested that in a rarely discussed discourse, Joseph once remarked that he had suffered interminably because he had claimed to be a prophet and had claimed that all of us can become so if we follow the principles of the living God. And that all around him, the Christian world were saying, there are no prophets and therefore you are a false prophet. And then he remarked, what is a man 
who stands in a pulpit and says, if you will do so-and-so, you will be saved. If you do not do so-and-so, you will not be saved. What is he? Is he not a prophet? Is he not making a prediction? Is not that prediction a prediction about salvation and the things of God? Therefore, being a predictor, he must either be a true or a false prophet. I have been given authority to say that certain things must be done in order to inherit the fullness of salvation and that some of the things men have claimed were requirements are not. The Holy Ghost is my witness. Well, that is ironical. So is it ironical that there have been abundant thousands of predictions from men who claimed that they weren't predicting that the church would fail. It hasn't failed. Thus endeth Mormonism, said a headline the morning after the prophet was killed. Mormonism has not ended. Somewhere toward the end of the Wentworth letter written in 1842, the prophet wrote a paragraph that I love to reread in moments of discouragement. No unhallowed hand can stop this work from progressing. Persecutions may rage. Armies may combine. Enemies may assemble. But the truth of God will go forth nobly and independently until it has penetrated every clime, sounded in every ear, and reached every heart until the great Jehovah shall say, it is done. Magnificent prophetic promise. But just as he said that, he also said, as the work of the kingdom of God increases and expands, so the work of opposition will increase and expand. We're living to see that every day. May I now focus a bit on some gems that come from the prophet in this period that are not as well known as others of our scriptures, but which are nevertheless recorded by those whom we can trust. Mormonism, he kept saying, is the pure doctrine of Jesus Christ, of which I myself am not ashamed. When someone asked him what is different about Mormonism, he kept saying it is to testify of Jesus Christ. You remember when Van Buren, he went east asking for redress, asked him one day, what's really different about you people? What do you have that other Christians don't? He replied in one word, the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is a summary, really, of what has been manifested in the modern restoration period. Here are some gems that I would like to share. No one will ever inherit the celestial kingdom unless he is strictly honest. That's a hard one. My own bishop has told me that when he asks the question, that that's one of the questions to which people almost universally reply, I try. Eventually we must do more than try. 
Never labor only for Zion and our brethren. I must rephrase that so you get the impact. Never labor only for Zion and your brethren. In other words, the principle of consecration. The temporal and the spiritual are inseparable. And now of the Holy Ghost. If you will listen to the first promptings, this is Elston Kelsey's recollection. If you will listen to the first promptings, you will hit it right nine times out of ten. He's talking here about the impressions or what he elsewhere speaks of as the flashes of the Spirit that come. We tend, all of us, my experience is that women do it less than men, but we tend, all of us, to second and third guess. We're given an assignment, an impression comes as to what to do with it. But then we begin to forget that and start to analyze it. doubt. Follow nine out of ten times the first promptings. That was his counsel. It is wisdom. Any man who will not fight for his wife and children is a coward. Better know this if you have ever wondered. Joseph Smith, the prophet of the Lord Jesus Christ, was not a pacifist. Oh, yes, his voice was always for peace. But reread section 98. When men beat their plowshares into swords and attack, there is a law of God that justifies defense. And therefore, ugly though it be, justifies war. And prophet felt and said elsewhere that one thing uglier than war is cowardice and the refusal to stand for one's own loved ones in the breach. A man, another comment on honesty, a man who had an honest heart, said the prophet, should rejoice. Speaking of the United States, he once commented, this is, I've often believed this, never seen it in print, the only nation on the earth, meaning at that time, where the kingdom of God could be established. If you will thank the Lord with all your heart every night for all the blessings of that day, you will eventually find yourself exalted in the kingdom of God. Powerful statement on the necessity spiritually of gratitude. A paraphrase of something he says in the scriptures. He that receiveth all things with thankfulness. Notice the all in that. Difficulty, strain, disaster, setbacks. He that receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious. And the things of this earth shall be added unto him an hundredfold, yea, more. Joseph was one of the most grateful men who ever lived. Don't depend, no, don't climb to the extreme branches of the tree, for there is danger of falling. Cling close to the trunk. Translation, for many of us, avoid the vain mysteries and the discussion thereof. Avoid imaginative speculation. 
But Joseph Smith, I must quickly add, made a distinction between the mysteries of godliness, that is, the deeper things that can only be known by revelation to the soul, on the how of living a godly life. He made a distinction between those mysteries, so-called, of which he said, I beseech you, go forward and search deeper and deeper into the mysteries of godliness and that kind of mystery which is vain and of which we know nothing and need not know anything. Whether, for example, the pearly gates swing or roll, or whether, for example, we may know the condition of the sons of perdition. Cling close to the trunk, said Joseph Smith. And then one of the strongest and wisest statements I have ever heard on egoism. That's a philosophical term. The question was put to him, Joseph, is the principle of self-aggrandizement wrong? Should we seek our own good? Listen to his answer. Some people entirely denounce the principle of self-aggrandizement, but it is a true principle. But, Alice, it can only be exercised upon one plan or principle, and that is that we seek to elevate and ennoble others also. If a man will seek to elevate others, the very work itself will tend to elevate him. Upon no other principle can a man justly and permanently aggrandize himself. That is another way of saying what was said in the New Testament, he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. And paraphrasing, he that seeketh to save his life, his mere physical survival, against me or in indifference to me, will lose it. And what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Nothing. Just one more and then the closing section. Lorenzo's story records a day when someone came and said to Joseph, it had happened hundreds of times, who are you? And he replied, Noah came before the flood. I have come before the fire. That leads me to a fascinating question. How much did Joseph Smith know about himself and his own calling? Clearly it grew and expanded from the initial encounters of the sacred grove. But what really was going on in that tantalizing phrase picked up by enemies and friends, you do not know me? Or, and there are a half dozen of these, his turning to people on the stand, this happened at least three times in Nauvoo, and saying, if I revealed all that has been made known to me, not a man on this stand would say with, and in another case, men on this stand would seek my blood, one later did. And even to Brigham Young, he once said, Brigham, I can't tell you all or you wouldn't stay with me. To which Brigham replied, then don't tell me. Because what I know, I know. Well, 
It is fascinating work to speculate, but there are two things on record that help with that question. There is a discourse recorded in which he refers to that interesting part of the first chapter of John, where they come and say, who are you? This is John the Baptist. Are you Elias, or are you Messiah, or are you that great prophet who is to come? It would have been thought by his critics a stretch for Joseph to say, you see there, there's some reference to a great prophet to come. I am he. Uh, but with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and certain traditions I have recently read in Hasidic Judaism, it becomes clear that even as recently as two centuries before Christ, they had in their teaching variations, no doubt, but a tradition that there wasn't just a Messiah to come. Oh yes, the Messiah ben Judah, the son of Judah, the son of David, the stem of Jesse, who indeed would redeem. But right alongside that set of prophecies and all that they entail was another set about a Messiah ben Joseph, a Messiah son of Joseph who would be a restorer of all things. What, I said to a scholar famous for his New Testament skill, Harvard. What possibly could be restored? He said, well, you know, there is that phrase in the Lord's Prayer that says, thy kingdom come. This was to be offered by Christians who had just received the kingdom in Jesus. But clearly the prayer presupposes that something more is to come. And then he said there's that language in the book of Acts about the restitution of all things. Now, this man is an expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls. He knows nothing of Joseph Smith, or didn't when we had our conversation. If it wasn't Joseph named Smith, then the world must yet wait for that prophet who is to come and who is to restore all things. The question occurred to me as I went through the Dead Sea Scrolls, I wonder if the prophet himself knew that. I wonder if he ever had a glimpse that there was such a strand down through the centuries, even between the periods of the Testaments, when men had that word-of-mouth tradition. And I wonder if he recognized his own greatness in that term. In this discourse, he speaks of seven dispensations, though that leaves out of account the Nephite and the Enochian dispensations, and says that the last days would be the dispensation of the fullness of times. His brother Hiram, who surely saw him as a man and a brother, yet said earnestly, there were prophets before, but Joseph has the spirit and power of all the prophets. I think the prophet Joseph knew that he had been called in this the greatest of all dispensations. And I think he knew that meant something as to his own calling, a calling that came long before this world. 
That leads to the second point on which he gives us a little insight. Every man, he said, who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of this earth was ordained to that calling in the Grand Council before the world was. And then he adds, with some care and caution, I suppose I was ordained to this very calling. Well, he didn't suppose. By the end, he knew. Brigham Young, who went without bread and much else in order just to hear the prophet on any subject, on any time, even if he was only expressing opinions, that same Brigham Young who died with the name of Joseph on his lips, once said in a family reunion in Nauvoo that what Joseph had in mind in saying, you do not know me, was essentially a matter of heritage and blood that the Lord God of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, had made covenant that in the last days that branch would indeed run over the wall, and that God had watched over by the union of ancestors that blood until it came pure and unsullied into Joseph. Now there is one fascinating glimpse that he knew that and how he knew it which we have recently confirmed. A letter was written from Orson to Parley P. Pratt many years ago saying, you'll recall that Joseph had a vision through the Urim and Thummim in which he saw that we, meaning the Pratt brothers, and he, meaning the Smiths, had a common ancestor only five generations back. Parley, I have been unable to forge this link. I hope you can. And that's a paraphrase. The letter remained in an attic until 1930. Neither Parley nor Orson were successful. But then a granddaughter took that letter to Archibald F. Bennett, one of the greatest genealogists in all history. And he did the research. He discovered that five generations back, there was indeed a common ancestor named John Lathrop, or if you prefer, Lothrop. And that not only was he the common ancestor of those men, but also of just to name some. Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, Newell K. Whitney, and the uh, Orson Hyde, and Wilfred Woodruff, and others. The whole who's who of the first generation of Mormonism came out of one common stock. What the prophet said we will one day discover is that all of us, regardless of our present guesses and researchings as to origin in family, all of us will find that there is in our veins the cumulative blood of Israel. And whether by actual birth or by actual adoption into the kingdom or both, it is intended by the Almighty that we belong literally to the family of Abraham. And those of us who have mostly Gentile inheritance will find that through the renovating powers of the Holy Ghost, we are made, as Joseph said, literally of the blood of Abraham by a process called the sanctification of the Holy Ghost. And the visible effect, he said, of that experience is far greater than the impact of the Holy Ghost, which is pure intelligence, on others who have more of the blood of Ephraim. It is not a closed shop. It is not a power-mongering super race. It is an open family 
into which we are grafted and through which probably most of us have heavy genealogical indebtedness. Joseph was an Ephraimite. He was ordained in the Grand Council before the world was, and he was that great prophet who is to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.